Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Secrets and Spies. Let's start by clearing the air here. Yes, this episode is all about the ultra-secret government base deep in the Nevada desert that many of us know as Area 51. No, this episode is not about aliens, flying saucers, weather control, time travel, or shadowy one-world governments. Elvis and JFK Jr. both really are dead. I'm sorry to break it to you. If that's what you're interested in, keep scrolling because there's plenty of it out there. Instead, we're talking about the real Area 51, or what could maybe more accurately be called the National Classified Test Facility, where the U.S. Air Force has developed advanced military aircraft for 70 years. Aircraft like the U-2 and SR-71 spy planes, and the F-117 stealth fighter, not to mention plenty more that we'll never know about. Joining me today is aerospace historian Peter Merlin, who has been researching Area 51 since 1984. In that time, he's written numerous articles on the subject and has appeared in TV shows like Modern Marvels, UFO Hunters, and Mystery Quest. His latest book is called Dreamland, The Secret History of Area 51. It's a sweeping, comprehensive, fact-based study of the base and the men and women who've served there, or at least as comprehensive as we can know without a top-secret clearance. It's a book unlike any that's been published before, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on your podcast streaming app of choice. And if you're not already, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's super easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Generosity helps keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Peter Merlin, welcome to Secrets and Spies. Honestly, this is probably the most excited I've been for an interview on this podcast, and it is so, so great to have you. Thanks for having me here. It's great. So before we get into the book and step behind the green door, uh, tell us a bit about you and your work. Uh, well, I've been researching the history of uh, special access programs, uh, black projects as they're known, probably for close to 40 years. Got an interest when I started reading about the U-2 spy plane back in the early 1980s, and uh, I read that it had been tested at a secret air base in Nevada called Area 51. And the whole concept of a, a secret base within the U.S. was just uh, really fascinating, so I decided I wanted to learn more about that. So Dreamland is the first scholarly, authoritative history of Area 51, um, yeah. not the Area 51 of pop culture, the tinfoil hat brigade, the conspiracy theories, but the real thing. So the U.S. Air Force's premier classified proving ground for uh, the development and testing of advanced military aircraft and aerospace technology. Um, this book's the culmination of 30 years of research, and I think it's entirely warranted to call this your magnum opus. Like, this book is huge. Um, I'd, I'd drop it on the table for dramatic effect, but I'm afraid I'd, I'd break something. Um, it covers numerous programs throughout the base's history in great depth. 
Uh, there are photographs on every page, many of which have never been published before. Um, to get us started, why did you write this book? How, how did it come to be? Well, uh, it, it really started with me collecting information uh, many years ago, and I was mostly just gathering information for my own interest. Uh, the subject fascinated me. I wanted to learn as much as I could. Uh, I started out before the internet was a thing, so uh, it was really hard to get information. Uh, there were some references to Area 51 and a couple of books and a few articles. And had I known where to look, I would have been able to find some uh, some archived newspaper stories as well, but I, I didn't learn about that until much later. Uh, over time, I began meeting people who had been involved with some of these programs, people who had worked at Area 51, and uh, hearing their stories was quite fascinating. But originally, I had no intention of writing a book. I was just collecting information, and you know, after a while, people started saying, geez, you got a lot of information. Maybe you ought to write a book. And I thought, nah, that's, you know, that's silly. But um, after I'd gotten a few actual publications under my belt, I began thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe that is something I should do. And of course, the thing is, you know, when you, when you collect all this stuff and you think, uh, you know, I should write a book, but if only I had just a little bit more information, it would be so much better. So you put it off and collect a little more information, and it's like, ooh, this is good. But if I just had a little bit more, it would be better. Well, you know, eventually you have to say, don't let better be the enemy of good enough. And I waited more than 30 years to get to that point, which uh, I think was, was a good thing to do. It meant that in the intervening years, a lot of programs got declassified, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, which originally built Area 51, had not acknowledged the agency's uh, activities there until 2010. Uh, but once they did, that opened up a lot more, a lot more doors, a lot more information. So it was, it was eventually possible to put together a, you know, pretty comprehensive narrative. You know, obviously, it's not a complete narrative. There are many programs that are still classified and will remain so for many years or decades. Things happening now, things that have happened even decades ago have not yet been revealed. But I was able to put together a, a sufficient narrative that readers will be able to really feel like they understand what Area 51 is all about and what it's like to live and work there. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're not a former service member or intelligence officer. You do not now, nor have you ever held a security clearance. How, how did you manage to conduct all this research, like in the open? It's true. I've, I've never been a, a government security officer uh, or anything like that. And for most of my life, I did not hold any sort of security clearance and was happy to do, uh, to do so. I didn't want one. I didn't need one. Uh, I was forced to take a pretty basic one for one of my jobs, uh, but you know that had no overlap on any of this uh, Area 51 related stuff, and that's a separate, separate thing altogether. I was never briefed into any special access programs for again, which I am very grateful. I would not yeah. want to be in that world, so I had to rely entirely on unclassified source material, and that means both documents that were at one time classified and that were subsequently downgraded to unclassified, uh, um, and also stuff that was never classified in the first place, of which there's a surprising amount. Because you can't really operate a facility this big 
you know, in a completely classified manner. In fact, one of the biggest surprises I had, you know, I kind of kind of grew up with uh, the conventional wisdom that Area 51 was so classified that the government didn't even admit, acknowledge it existed until uh, the, the mid-1990s, and even then obliquely. But that wasn't true. It turns out that the government acknowledged the existence of the base uh, from the very moment they started building it back in 1955. The, as I said, the CIA was responsible for funding uh, the project, but they needed to keep the agency's involvement secret, so they hid behind the Atomic Energy Commission. The airfield was built off the corner of the Nevada test site for nuclear weapons, and so the Atomic Energy Commission was a, a natural cover. There was already restrictions surrounding the, uh, the area and the airspace, and so it was really easy to have the AEC draft a press release saying, hey, we're building a little airfield to support our atomic testing. And, you know, they hoped that nobody would really pay much attention to that, although the press release was given to various newspapers, radio stations, and television uh, news organizations at the time. And that should have been a great cover, but even within a few months uh, of, of that announcement, there were people within the media who were already referring to uh, Groom Lake as the super-secret proving grounds within the proving grounds. So, obviously, you know, they, they smelled a rat. There was something, something leaking out that, that told them this is not just a little bit of support for the atomic programs. And that, uh, that kind of came to light in November 1955 when an Air Force transport carrying a bunch of personnel to Groom Lake crashed on a mountain. And, uh, you know, when the... Uh, news media started looking into it. There were some inconsistencies in the story, you know, and it, it sort of it pushed a little, little bit into the light. Uh, the base was originally called Watertown Airstrip. It was only a temporary camp during the U-2 spy plane test and training days, uh, 1955 through uh, summer of 57, when it was essentially closed down and mothballed for a while. Uh, in 1959, when the CIA was looking to create a successor to the U-2, an airplane that could fly much higher and faster, uh, this was the, the A-12, the predecessor to the famed SR-71 Blackbird, uh, the Watertown facility was reopened and additional construction took place to make it a radar cross-section test facility and eventually build it up into a full-scale airbase for testing the A-12. And it was during that time that it became known as Area 51. So you sort of got us nicely into the into the genesis of, of the base. One thing that really sort of interested me was to learn that how it, it kind of began as a, I guess you could say, um, a partnership between the CIA and Kelly Johnson at Lockheed, the famed aerospace engineer who, who founded their Skunk Works division. That's, that's true. And because... Uh... Many of the early programs that took place there, uh, the U-2, the A-12, subsequent developments of the A-12 and various drones, those were all Lockheed Skunk Works programs. Kelly Johnson was a brilliant engineer, a very good organizer of people, and uh, he was also a huge personality. He kind of took over the, the yep. base to some extent, making it his own personal uh, test site, and the, the agency sometimes had uh, you know, run-ins with him over that. But 
It was a very good collaboration. The Air Force was also involved from the very beginning. Strategic Air Command purchased a bunch of U-2 spy planes as well, and they provided a lot of the support personnel for the base in terms of uh, firefighting and and, uh, some of the other other things that security was provided by the Atomic Energy Commission and the CIA. And then, uh, you know, as, as things progressed, the base just grew and grew into a much, much larger facility. It was no longer a temporary camp. It was now a permanent air base with a, an 8,500-foot-long runway with a 6,000-foot extension out onto the lake bed, a lot of hangars, a lot of housing, quite a few more people. Um, you know, more than more than twelve hundred people were working there for a while, and the population has grown since then. So this is during you know the nineteen fifties when all late nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties when all this really kind of began in earnest. Um, you mentioned how you know right next door is the Nevada test site, I guess then controlled by the um, AEC, now the Department of Energy, and this is at a time when you know there was a lot of the lower yield above ground nuclear tests happening on on Frenchman Flat, you know, like casinos would famously advertise like you know come see a show and then see a bomb go off in the morning. How did operating that environment sort of affect activities at Groom Lake at that time? It definitely caused a lot of problems. In the mid-1950s, when the when the base opened up, there were at that time no above-ground tests going on. So it was a quiet period for a while. But then in uh, 57, you had Operation Plum Bob starting up and uh, the atmospheric testing again, which meant anytime there were, uh, there were above-ground tests, the base had to be evacuated. All the work was shut down. Uh, only, you know, a few security personnel were left on site. Uh, it was it was a, a serious problem, and partly led to the the shutdown of activities in the summer of '57 because it was just going to be impossible to get anything done. Now, the base was reopened again subsequently in 1959, and in the early 1960s, there were still above ground tests, and that also caused uh, temporary evacuations. So you you had some of the the big tests like uh, Shot Hood in July of 57, which actually was a 74 kiloton detonation. If if you want to compare, Hiroshima was 13 kilotons. So this is a really big bomb. And even though it was about 15 miles away from the base, it still, you know, broke some windows and caused damage to some of the buildings. And of course, one of the big issues was that the tests were planned when the winds were blowing uh, from Yucca Flat and Frenchman Flat to the northeast, which would take any fallout away from populated areas like Las Vegas or Los Angeles. Unfortunately, uh, that meant it would blow right over Groom Lake and head over into uh, uh, central Nevada and into Utah, where you know, it caused a lot of problems for the, the downwinders. Yeah. Um... So at, at what point did um, did control of the base, I guess, formally shift from Langley to the Air Force, and how did that kind of change the culture, the management, the sort of programs that happened there? The CIA decided in the mid-1970s that it was probably time to get out of the airplane business, and so by that time, the Air Force was a major tenant at Area 51, conducting tests of captured Soviet fighter planes. And so agency officials decided 
it would be a good idea to transfer responsibility to the Air Force. And that took place beginning in 1977. And uh, so by 1979, a formal Air Force organization had been set up to uh, have complete responsibility for Groom Lake. The term Area 51 fell into disuse. Uh, it was now referred to as Detachment 3 of the Air Force Flight Test Center. And it definitely had a cultural shift. For a while, apparently, in the, the early days of Air Force ownership, um, it was surprisingly open, and they had a, a number of, of visitors who, <laughs> who came out to check out this place. But uh, the stealth programs were coming uh, into being at that time, the aircraft that were invisible to radar. So security tightened up quite a bit, and... The, the the MIG evaluation programs, the Soviet fighters, continued as well. And that got to be a much bigger program. And there were developments by both Lockheed and Northrop on different approaches to developing stealth technology. And so these, these programs occupied the early to uh, late 1980s quite a bit. Security was, was tightened to the point where eventually someone said, you know, there's some mountains surrounding this base where people can climb up and, you know, look at us with binoculars, you know, spy on what's going on. So the Air Force uh, essentially seized about 89,000 acres of public land in the Groom Mountains, and they did this without any congressional approval. That met with a lot of opposition. Uh, eventually, congressional approval was given sort of retroactively. And so all of that land became Air Force property. They missed a couple of spots. And in the 1990s, some people who were interested in, in Groom Lake for looking at you know, whatever was going on there, spooky aircraft or UFOs or whatever, found these hilltops and decided this is a good place to camp out and take pictures and you know, bring our binoculars. Uh, the Air Force didn't like that. Because anytime there were unauthorized visitors on the, the hilltops, it meant all the activities had to stop at Groom Lake. That was costing the taxpayers millions of dollars. It was keeping workers idle. You know, programs were delayed. And so the Air Force took nearly 5,000 acres of additional public land, which was the maximum they could get away with without congressional approval. And that pushed the the viewers back to the, the nearest hilltop where you could see the base, and that was some 26 miles away, and that is still available, Tickaboo Peak, although the, the Air Force has stuck cameras up there so that, you know, if you're up there watching, they're watching you. Yeah. Um, as I understand it, you have to have a really clear day and uh, some really good camera equipment, and even then, they're not going to pull any good stuff out of the hangars while you're up there. It, it's true, and 26 miles is a lot of atmosphere to be looking through uh, with the best optics, so you yeah. have to really hope for some cold, still air. Although folks have gotten some pretty amazing pictures from there, for sure. Let's let's unpack two of the programs you, you mentioned. The first that I find really interesting is, I guess, one of the more famous ones that have since been um, declassified, and it was based not just at Groom Lake, but also at uh, Tonopah Sister Airfield across the Nevada Test and Training Range, and involved the study of captured Soviet MiGs and what the Air Force calls Foreign Material Exploitation, or FME. Can you tell us a bit more about that, what, what that was all about? Absolutely. That was a very large, uh, very important program and still is. Uh, 
to to a pretty high degree. In the uh, 1960s, during the Vietnam War, U.S. forces were really taking a pounding in the air over Southeast Asia. The kill ratio was very bad, and so the U.S. Defense Department wanted to learn as much as possible about the Soviet-type aircraft that were being used. And in 1968, uh, thanks to some help from uh, Israel, uh, Air Force was able to acquire a MiG-21, bring it to Area 51, and test fly it against all of the different U.S. combat aircraft, also take its uh, radar cross-section measurements, infrared uh, signature measurements, just really you know, study its, its uh, strengths and vulnerabilities, both in a technical sense and also a tactical sense. So you have technical exploitation, which is essentially learning about how the aircraft is built, uh, what are its performance capabilities generally, um, uh, vulnerabilities to different kinds of weapons or electronic warfare systems. And then the tactical exploitation was actually flying simulated combat missions against the enemy aircraft and finding out you know, how you can defeat it in combat. So that eventually split into a couple different programs. Um, some of the early, I mentioned the MiG-21, there was a, MiG, a couple of MiG-17s were brought out also in 1969 and in the early 1970s, more MiG-21s and 17s, and eventually by the 80s, uh, you know, they had MiG-23s as well. So really a, a wide variety of different Soviet-type aircraft. So the program kind of split into the technical evaluation, uh, was known as the Red Hats, and remained uh, at Area 51. The tactical exploitation was done by the Red Eagles, and they eventually uh, moved their operation to Tonopah Test Range, which is up in the uh, northwest corner of the Nevada Test and Training Range. And they had a whole squadron of Soviet aircraft, MiG-17s, 21s, and 23s, and the Red Eagles would fly them in simulated combat against uh, frontline U.S. forces. So, uh, you know, these squadrons, like you might get an F-15 squadron or F-16 squadron, would come from wherever their home base was and deploy to Nellis and then go out to the range after a, a briefing and you know, meet the MiGs in person. Because uh, you know, the whole purpose of the more generic red flag exercises, which used F-5s as surrogates for the MiGs, was that if a, uh, you know, if the first 10 missions in combat are the most dangerous, then you want to get those out of the way in training first, so that if a pilot has to go into actual combat, you know, he'll already have the com confidence to, to deal with it. And, you know, that was one thing flying against an F-5, but when you see an actual Soviet MiG-21 or MiG-23 in the air, you know, there was a, a definite, <laughs> a definite emotional uh, kind of response to that. So the, the pilots had to kind of get over that, and pretty soon they, you know, they, they got with the program. And that effort still continues today in some form. It does. The, the original constant peg training activity, uh, which went from the late 1970s to 1988, and exposed more than 6,000 U.S. airmen to combat with the MiGs. That was shut down due to budget cuts, but uh, has continued on a much smaller scale because we you know, we still have 
We still have surrogate planes doing uh, the red flag aggressor training. And we have guys flying actual MiGs uh, in more limited engagements to keep that, uh, that, that corporate knowledge going. In 2017, it was, there was a, a crash outside Groom Lake um, that the Air Force very quickly um, sort of didn't, didn't want to say anything about. Um, a, a test pilot was, was, was killed there. Um, didn't want to say what what kind of aircraft was involved or you know anything. Your book goes into quite a bit of detail about what actually happened there. So I think you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that was a little bit unfortunate because it uh, it wasn't even during one of the you know evaluation flights. There was a it was a two seat uh, Sukhoi Su twenty seven, and uh, the pilot flying it. He was a commander. The Red Hats, the guy in the back seat was getting a familiarization ride. There was a uh, problem with the landing gear. They were not able to land safely, so the the crew uh, ejected, but unfortunately the pilot perished in that. And uh, like so many times before, when secret aircraft had crashed either on or off the ranges, the, the Air Force sort of stonewalled the media on it but eventually the story kind of kind of came out which uh, uh, seems to be the case it brought to mind an incident back in the uh, 1980s when a uh, general uh, had been taking a solo familiarization flight in a MiG-23 and lost control and crashed on the Nevada test site and at that time you know the news media was just told you know sorry we can't say what it was it was an experimental prototype and there were a lot of rumors then about stealth, so there was speculation about that, but eventually congressional sources leaked that it had been a MiG-23, so that came out. The other big, you mentioned this a bit previously, the other big effort happening at Groom Lake around this time was sort of the beginning of the, the stealth revolution, which, I mean, kind of continues right now into sixth-gen technology. I mean, we could easily do a whole episode just on, on that, but um, if you can, walk us a bit through how Groom has been involved in those efforts? Well, back in the 1970s, there were a lot of interesting ideas for what future uh, combat aircraft should should be. But as, as it turned out, there were some really innovative concepts involving how to make an aircraft invisible to detection by radar. Because the harder it is to detect the, the airplane, the easier it is for that airplane to break through an enemy's defenses, get close to a target, and destroy that target. And so some of the early efforts focused on essentially attack aircraft and bomber-type aircraft and cruise missiles. And computer technology for the time uh, was, was pretty good if you wanted to calculate the radar cross-section of a flat panel. So some engineers at Lockheed came up with a, a concept of an aircraft made entirely of flat panels. It was faceted like a, like a gem. So it didn't look particularly aerodynamic at all. Uh, in fact, the aerodynamicists really hated it. <laughs> they uh, said it looked like a, you know, Kelly Johnson said it looked like a tin shed in a hurricane. But um, <laughs> it, was, it was a good approach from, from a radar standpoint. And they were able to make it fly using, you know, computer technology, a lot of redundancy uh, for controls. And from that came the demonstrator called Have Blue, which proved the technology uh, in a subscale form. And then 
eventually the F-117A Nighthawk, which we know as the stealth fighter, uh, that proved to be so capable during Operation Desert Storm and subsequently. But that was still a fairly uh, primitive technology. You know, the, the flat shaping was able to reflect radar waves away from the receiver, coating the aircraft in radar absorbent materials, uh, helped reduce the, those emanations even more. You know, and you can make the radar cross-section pretty small. But Northrop pursued a different angle uh, using curved surfaces. Uh, if you can make a, an airplane out of curved surfaces, it will be much more aerodynamic. You can use a more conventional shape of the aircraft. And if you can make that airplane stealthy, so much the better. So that's where uh, their demonstrator, Tacit Blue, came from, which gave a lot of... Uh, you know, lessons learned to what became the B-2 stealth bomber. And you know, if you look at modern aircraft, uh, you'll see that the new B-21 looks a lot like the B-2, except uh, you know, even, even stealthier. And the, uh, uh, some of the newer fighter planes look fairly conventional. The, the F-22 and the F-35 look quite conventional compared to uh, say the F-117 or, or even the B-2, but yet they've taken on a lot of lessons learned from these earlier programs. And so we're, you know, we're now orders of magnitude further along in developing low observables technology. Yeah, thanks for that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more. So Groom Lake and the broader Nevada test and training range have long had a close relationship with JSOC and the special operations community, including some involvement in Operation Neptune Spear, the mission to kill uh, Osama bin Laden. What, what role did, did, did Groom play there? Well, it's my understanding that, uh, that the Nevada test and training range was one of several locations used to train the helicopter crews using the stealth helicopters involved in the in the Bin Laden raid, and uh, a lot of planning went into that, involving uh, simulating the compound where Bin Laden was hiding in Pakistan, and of course, the Nevada desert. You know, it's a it's a high desert locality. It's a good simulation, you know, high fidelity simulation of what the terrain is like in in Pakistan as well. So that was a good place for training these crews, and that mission. Uh, ended up being quite successful, other than the slight mishap of wrecking one of the helicopters, which is the only reason we, you know, that you and I know that there's a stealth helicopter because the wreckage was yeah. still sitting there at the compound when the uh, when the news media showed up. One of the, uh, I guess, more important roles out at out at, at Grim Lake is their uh, electronic warfare range, which I understand can sort of be used to to mimic the air defenses of of any country, and they use these radars out there to mimic Pakistani air defenses and test them against the Blackhawks. Yeah, ever since the late, well, ever since the early '60s, even uh, the Nevada Test and Training Range has been a place where the DoD has accumulated both actual and simulated threat systems from various uh, and you know aggressor countries or potential adversaries so you know these were mostly uh, you know, systems that had been sold by the Soviets to their uh, allies and client states 
got acquired through a combination of of dealings with you know our allies and and just uh, you know remnants from various wars in the Middle East. So yeah, that's that's grown as well. It's a very complex system. There's a lot of people out there who can probably set up the range so that it simulates any number of different air defense systems around the world. And we fly our combat planes out there and, you know, see how well they can penetrate those systems. So Groom Lake is still very much active today. The modern airfield hosts a wing-sized organization employing hundreds of contractors and military personnel. I don't think people people appreciate the scale of the operation that goes on out there, and they'd probably be surprised at how mundane and, and spartan uh, it can be. What can you tell us about the organization that runs the base itself, how it's structured, and maybe just in broad strokes, what happens there on a day-to-day basis today? Well, uh, as you say, it's a wing size organization. In the Air Force, uh, an objective wing is essentially a, a fairly basic uh, construct. So you have a, a wing command section, and the wing oversees several different groups. So you'll have an operations group, a logistics group, medical group, you know, or director, which is also a group size organization, so a security directorate. Uh, there was a range directorate that's now a range group. And then these group size organizations are broken down into squadron size organizations, you know, each with their own particular missions. So, uh, you know, it's it's like you'd find pretty much on on any Air Force base, this is obviously a test wing, so it's geared towards uh, test and evaluation. You know, has some specialized elements there. You know, and you'll you'll have about you know approximately 500 or so uniform military and uh, Department of the Air Force civil service personnel, and 2,000 or more contractor personnel, and that's uh, that's fairly typical in today's Air Force. That's just the, the the way things are done. Workers have to get to work, so many of them uh, may arrive by bus from local communities. You know, some in personal vehicles. Uh, many of them fly in with a dedicated fleet of six 737s that operates out of Las Vegas. And uh, you know, when you when you think about how many people are are working there, and you know, they have to move that workforce back and forth. You know, on a on a daily or weekly basis, it's pretty amazing. You've, you know, a lot of people will come on a Monday uh, Monday morning and they'll stay through the week and then return home on on Friday. So you've got some time during the week to set up for testing. You know, days for you know, conducting the actual test test projects and winding that up and then uh, then coming home again. And it's got to be pretty hard on the people who work there and their families because you know they'll. Folks will go away for a whole week. They come back. They can't talk about where they've been or what they've been doing. It might not be for years until something is declassified. They can say, hey, you know, I remember when I used to disappear for a week at a time? Well, you know, here's why. Yeah. So we sort of understand it here. The organization base there is Detachment 3 Air Force Test Center, which is under the Air Force Materiel Command. That's correct, yes. And the name of the base itself, like the airfield, it's not Area 51, or hasn't been for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, you know, where the Air Force has said, said things like, well, you know, it doesn't have a name per se, which mm-hmm. is sort of true. I mean, yes, it, it is Area 51. That was an official name that was given to that location. 
you know, there have been people over the years who said, oh, wasn't Area 51 just some, you know, goofy name the UFO nuts came up with? And it's like, no, no, it was really called that. It's it's on the maps. It's on, it's in the, the telephone directories. It was, you know, on the, the badges that personnel were wearing, you know, security personnel and fire department. Um, so Area 51 was a real designation. It just wasn't used by the Air Force because that's not part of their nomenclature. That was assigned from the uh, uh, Atomic Energy Commission and, and you know, the CIA adopted it and used it officially. And so uh, it can be called DEP-3, uh, AFTC, which, you know, is a legitimate, you know, name. It's, it's an organization name, but you can also use it to refer to the operating location. Uh, it can be called Dreamland, which is a radio call sign that's used. Uh, it describes the airspace over the, the, the Groom Lake area. But I've seen an official document where an operations command uh, operations group commander, you know, signed his name, and then under that, under organization, just put Dreamland. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's a legitimate name as well. And it's just slippery enough that there's some deniability for the Air Force if you. If you try to ask them about it, and they can shrug their shoulders, but a lot of um, a lot of official Air Force uh, biographies mention, you know, of, of various officers, you know, specifically mentioned Detachment Three Air Force Flight Test Center, Test Center, and uh, you know, other times they just use the words data masked or classified location. So it's a little bit schizophrenic. Uh, there, there's no single single philosophy for how the air force treats that so sometimes they they act like it's just you know the most super secret thing in the world and other times they seem quite open about it it's really strange it's interesting to me how i guess if you know what to look for and how to read between some of the lines of some of these you know like you said the the officer biographies and everything um, I mean, a lot of it will say like, you know, location, it'll say data mast or something, but like, there's some people that you can follow. Um, you look at their biographies and you can tell like they've spent their entire professional careers in and around the space. It's, it's, it's true. And I mean, just looking for the words data mask doesn't necessarily mean anything. There's lots of different data mask locations all over the world. But if you, if you see that you know, like, for instance, the, the person you're looking at you know, worked at a data mass location, but their whole career is all missiles in space, then chances are they're not going to be out in Groom Lake. But if they were, you know, at the test pilot school and doing all this, you know, fighter testing or whatever, and, you know, then they get a, a data mass assignment as a an operations officer and a squadron commander and you know, they they lived in Las Vegas, which of course you know there's a lot of records that are publicly available, uh, yeah. voter records and such. And so you can say, well, geez, that guy you know lived right there in Vegas and <laughs> and has these data mass assignments. I wonder where that was, and it's fairly obvious. Yeah. Uh, in early 2022, commercial satellite imagery captured an exotic delta-shaped aircraft about the size of a fighter parked on an apron near one of the more remote southern hangars, uh, purely for speculation's sake. Um, if you could peel off the hangar roofs and look down from Google Earth right now, what would you expect to see? Well, it's an interesting thing that uh, in, in the past couple decades, there's been a lot of construction of new hangars. New hangars have showed up 
uh, again and again. You know, some of these were quite elaborate and expensive. You know, there's, there's one hangar facility that is estimated to cost, you know, close to $90, $90 million, you know, and that's not an insignificant expense when you include the hangar uh, office infrastructure, taxiway and ramp uh, parking area. And you say, well, you know, look at the base. There's already a couple dozen hangars. So, you know, if they're building new hangars, that, that means they need new hangars. They, they, it, these other hangars aren't empty. They're being used for stuff. So uh, generally it's been considered that the, uh, the Red Hats have used the, been using the northernmost hangars up on the north ramp. There's uh, uh, an area for parking chase planes like the F-16 and occasionally the F-18. Uh, that's recently been given a, a sunroof, which it, it helps the, the ground crews when they're maintaining the aircraft to keep out of the hot weather or the inclement weather, uh, and also does double duty of hiding what's parked under there. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. Whereas before you could say, hey, look, there's three chase planes. Now you just see a roof. Um, there was a, another set of hangars that was originally built for the F-117A for uh, accepting the Tactical Air Command operational aircraft as they came online. But after that was no longer needed, they were pressed into service for other things. And those have been uh, increased in size with the use of some of these, these shelter roofs. So people speculated that there might be some, some possibly some unmanned aerial vehicle testing going on. Some antennas that have shown up on parts of the base would suggest that as well. Uh, occasionally, you know, you'll find that certain hangars are assigned to specific companies like Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman or Boeing or whoever. So you probably got several different companies involved in combined test force operations with, you know, their, their military customers. And, uh, you know, we have new programs like the uh, NGAD, the sixth generation fighter, you know, it's next generation air dominance. There have been some reportedly some, some prototypes of that tested out there. Uh, I expect there's a lot of unmanned aerial vehicle activity going on. And who knows? There's, um, there's just so many things they aren't telling us. One of the one of the other sort of big um, black special access programs that's rumored to be in, I guess, well into development right now um, is a, a successor to the SR-71, what we, I guess, call for lack of a better term, the SR-72. Um, do we suspect that development is currently going on out there? That's a really good question. Lockheed Martin has sort of been putting the word out there that they are actively pursuing that. For a long time, it looked to me and to a lot of other analysts like it was largely a, you know, a study program, you know, a, a paper airplane, if you will. And we weren't really sure how close it was to any kind of actual hardware development. But uh, the company has been hinting very strongly that there is an actual, you know, hardware aircraft out there and that it's either flown or is getting ready to fly soon. You know, I hope that's true. It would be very exciting. So this is a um one of the things that I find kinda kinda funny. It's a little funny if you if 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 you look at it. I mean so Lockheed was apparently developing this program internally with with corporate funds, as you mentioned. Um and then shortly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, 
every mention of it, like press releases, everything just disappeared from uh, Lockheed's website. Could we sort of deduce that the Air Force suddenly got interested? That's quite possible. And, uh, you know, if it is, you know, they're talking about a, a hypersonic reconnaissance platform, you know, there there is still a use for that sort of thing, like the you know, with the SR-71 as a, you know, Mach 3 reconnaissance platform. It could, you know, be sent in from any direction you chose and make a, a high and fast dash across the target. But a lot of other uh focus has been on persistence so you want to have a platform that can be persistent long term while being uh, undetectable so a stealthy high altitude platform that would remain within a an area of interest for a considerable amount of time so that would be a subsonic platform so you've really got you know a couple different kind of things the the subsonic stealthy platform seems to have been well into development since uh since 2009, and is undoubtedly operational at this point. Whereas this new high-speed platform is probably, uh, you know, still still coming into being. So I guess a lower-speed platform is also, for lack of a better term, the RQ-180. Uh, right. That's that's the term that was used in 2013 in a an article in Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine. Uh, reporter Bill Sweetman you know, insisted that he was told that's what it was called. So Maybe it is. There were some reasons why that, you know, could have been completely illogical and unlikely. But on the other hand, uh, a lot of these these secret programs get saddled with bizarro uh, kind of alphanumeric designators. Yeah. Are there any other uh, moments or stories during your research that particularly fascinated or intrigued you? Well, um, I, I have to say some of the most fun I've had has been talking to the people who worked out there. I've met a lot of really interesting uh, interesting folks, engineers, pilots, all kinds of different different people who work different aspects of the, the programs. You know, it sounds like in the in the nineteen sixties and seventies, particularly and in, into the nineteen eighties, it was kind of the wild west out there. These guys were off on their own and you know had uh, no no adult supervision so to speak uh you know there it's it it eventually got to the point where the air force had to sort of impose a little bit more regulation on things and try to uh try to try to rein things in a bit you know but i think it suffice it to say the people who work there they they work hard they make a lot of sacrifices and so they're probably entitled to cut loose a bit, um, and no doubt they do. And I hope that somewhere down the line they'll eventually be able to talk about their accomplishments. Yeah, uh, I think that that's one of the really interesting things about your book. I mean, there's you know a, a lot of stuff, very cool, interesting stuff about all the aircraft that have been tested out there. But there's also just a lot of um, really good human stories about the people out there. You know, you mentioned how they kind of let loose, like you talk about the the bar that's out there, Sam's place, um, which is really interesting. And uh, yeah, I, I would encourage people when they get the book, there's, um, you know, plenty of those little stories out there peppered uh, all through it. Um, so this is, after all, a conversation about Area 51. Um, I, I'd be remiss not to at least mention the little green uh, elephant in the room. So that's UFOs, Bob Lazar, all the many conspiracies. I mean, you're a serious person. You exist in reality and deal with facts. You care deeply about the subject. 
you also work in academia. And in that setting, I can easily see the perception of a colleague who, you know, maybe doesn't already know your work being, oh, that's the Area 51 guy, which you are, but not in that way. Um, so how has the conspiracy theory industrial complex that looms over Groom Lake graded against the seriousness of your research? Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And if I could have written the book without ever mentioning UFOs or Lazar, I would have done so. But that would have been disingenuous. Yeah. It uh, had to be addressed, and it is addressed, absolutely. Um, but you're right. It's, this is a serious uh, scholarly study of the history of Area 51. And part of the problem, of course, is if you mention this to anyone within academia, if you say, yeah, I wrote a book on Area 51, their first thought will be flying saucers, because that's what they've been conditioned uh, by popular culture to think about Area 51. So um, I wrote what I like to think is a very engaging, readable narrative, but I also made sure to document it from start to finish with source notes. There are 47 pages of source notes at the back of the book, because I wanted to show that I'd done my homework from an academic standpoint, and also I didn't want anyone to accuse me of using any sensitive materials. It's, it's all, all documented right there, what it is. And uh, I, you know, my scholarship is unassailable, so anyone in academia can, can look at this and I say, you know, you, you got to read the book before you, uh, you know, criticize. So it, it seems more difficult than ever for the federal government to keep a massive special access program like those that developed the A-12 and the F-117 hidden. Um, how do you see the future of secretive military research facilities like Groom Lake um, in an era of both increasing great power competition and public awareness? Well, yeah, the, to some extent, it is difficult to keep a, a program, even a black program, completely in the dark. I mean. You know, and this goes all the way back to the Manhattan Project when, you know, they did so much to keep things super secret, and yet the, the Russians still managed to get all the information yeah. about our atomic weapons design. And, you know, during the, uh, you know, the, the, the programs of testing the MiG-21, for instance, that was a, a secret project, and yet, you know, within a couple months, uh, it was already in Aviation Week and Space Technology. And, you know, so many of these programs just have a, detectable footprint that can be seen. And so, you know, you, you can't just keep it completely in the black, but you can keep the technical details for the most part, you know, secure and hidden away. So just, you know, just knowing that a program exists doesn't give away any, any advantage to an enemy. Uh, in fact, it might even cause them to start spending a lot of money that they wouldn't have otherwise spent. And, you know, we certainly exploited that during the Cold War getting the Soviets to uh, overextend themselves on their, their military budget. Um, but I think these sites will continue to be very valuable. And, you know, you got to remember that not everything that's secret is going on at a super secret base, like Tonopah Test Range or Groom Lake. There's secret stuff going on at military bases all across the, the country and, and around the world, and it's it's protected in in their own special ways. And and will continue to be so. What are you most hopeful that readers will take away from the book? Well, mostly I wanted to demystify Area 51. I want them to see it as a real place with real people, to, to feel it as, you know, to feel uh, its realness and not just imagine it as a black hole of mystery and, uh, and intrigue. Yeah. 
I think that's a that's a great way to sum it up. Um, I mean, what uh, what we covered today really just scratches the surface of all the really uh interesting details and stories that are that are in this book. I mean, we could easily go on for another hour or two, but I, I want to leave um a lot for for readers to discover uh on their own. Where where can listeners find more about you and your work? Well, my books are are certainly available. The uh, Dreamland, The Secret History of Area 51 is available from Schiffer Publishing. I have a lot of other uh, other books. All of my NASA publications are available as free ebooks online. I wrote a book about the design and development of the Blackbird for the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, which is available from AIAA. If it's not still in print, it might be, but if it isn't, uh, you can find copies on Amazon, I'm sure. And I've also written several titles for Arcadia Publishing's Images of America series, uh, and those include Area 51, uh, Tonopah Test Range, and Nevada Test Site. And those are uh, mostly photo essays that are very affordable and have a lot of good information if, if you just want the basic stuff. If you're into the real details, well, my my mighty tome, my magnum opus is uh, is the way to go with that. Yeah, this um this isn't a visual medium, but trust me when 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 I say it's a it's a very big and 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 weighty book. So the book is is Dreamland: The Secret History of Area 51. Um, we'll have all the links to where it's available and Peter's other uh, work in the show notes. If you're an aerospace geek or interested in military history, or even if you're a UFO conspiracy theorist, I guess uh, this book is well worth its weight and sticker price. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.